Welcome to Lunch with Tech Leaders, where we have engaging conversations about software development and cloud engineering with industry leaders and subject matter experts. These episodes are created by the Great Lakes Tech Leaders, an online community of technology practitioners. Please come join the conversation by visiting gltl.rbn.ai. Again, that's gltl.rbn.ai. Now strap in, because we're deploying to production in three, two, one. Uh, hello, everyone. And welcome to the latest episode of Launch with Tech Leaders. My name is Adam Oberhaus, and I'm the Vice President of Customer Solutions with Right Brain Networks, and I'm your host for today. Joining me today is uh, Lancelot Carlson, co-founder of HealPay and uh, AI enthusiast and all-around great guy. Say hi, Lance. Hi, everyone. Our other co-host, Tom Kowalski, MIA, AWOL, not sure. Hopefully he's okay. Hopefully he's not frozen. But yeah, if he joins and hops in, great. If not, uh, it's just you and I, Lance. Are we going to be able to do this on our own? Oh, I'm fully confident we are. That's what Agile is about, right? No planning? (laughs) Exactly. So yeah, this uh, episode, we're going to continue our discussion on Agile practices. We're going to dive deeper into the mechanics and best practices of executing on your iterations, commonly referred to as sprints. I, I don't like the word sprint. So I'm using the the word iteration. Last time we talked about kind of some high level agile stuff, kind of man- how it helps you manage projects. Talked about velocity charts, burn down charts. There was some debate about how valuable they are, um, but all around I thought it was a great conversation. So I'm excited to dive in more here. Yeah, me too. So I'd like to start with iteration zero, which is usually the the first iteration of any new project software development project. So it's a foundational phase. It's usually referred to as like a preparatory step, it lays the groundwork for the project. We're going to talk about some of the mechanics and best practices of that, um, including the INVEST criteria, which is a new acronym I wasn't familiar with, and uh, which is a tool for effective user stories. But usually the, the iteration zero starts with the kickoff meeting uh, where the project vision is shared. Um, this helps align the team and the goals and the scope. It's you know meant to have open discussion, clarify expectations, and just really setting the tone. Iteration zero should focus on the development team establishing their envi- development environment, selecting their tools, um, assuring everyone has access, and is everyone's comfortable with the technology and platforms that will be used. This stage usually involves sketching out a high-level design and architectural plan. You know, kind of define some of those key. Um, components and how they'll interact within the system. It, it shouldn't be an exhaustive, you know, every little detail sorted out um, because, you know, you really just want to understand the direction you're going and, and begin working. Um, is it is it like, what does that encompass? What's the scope of that? Is it like we're choosing Ruby on Rails, we're choosing MVC, we're using Postgres, or is it like, is it like the application is a to-do list application like what, how far, how far down the scope does it go? Yeah. I mean, that, I think that's a good question. I don't know if I have the right answer. I think we can, from what I've, what the research I did for the show is it did touch on those things. Like what, you know, what are we going to use a particular framework? What, what language is this going to be written in? Yeah. Uh, where is it going to be hosted? I think what, what stuck out to me the most is from an architecture perspective, you want to defer these decisions 
as long as possible. Like, right, you don't want to set something in stone on iteration zero if you're unsure of it. So, um, yes, you obviously need to pick a language. You you need to set a repo. Um, but, you know, you don't necessarily need to decide what framework you're going to use because once you decide a framework, you're kind of locked in. You're in a marriage with that framework. So that leads to the next part of this, which is iteration zero, is you should be creating that initial product backlog for iteration zero, which involves drafting the stories. Um, and um, when I when I did the research for the show, I came across this effective acronym for defining user stories, which is the INVEST acronym. Have you ever heard of this, Lance? Never. Okay, <laughs> yeah, me, me neither. I've been doing Agile for a long time. Never yeah. heard of this. Yeah. So, INVEST. I'll run through it real quickly. Oh, getting a ping from Tom. Okay, I'll tell him to join when he can. Got a fire at work. We've all been there. Uh, so, INVEST. I stands for independent. Each story should stand alone with minimal dependencies to facilitate flexible planning and implementation. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. You don't want your stories to be codependent on each other. They should be able to kind of be assigned without any particular order. Um, I think a lot of development teams, when they look at things, they're like, well, oh, well, first we got to we got to do login because everything else is dependent on login, but you don't necessarily need to do login first. It, you know, you can mock login. You can, you can demonstrate functionality of the system without having, oh, looks like Tom's here. You can demonstrate functionality of the system without maybe having some of those initial things like a database schema in place or even a login in place. Next on that is the letter N, which is negotiable. User stories are not rigid contracts, uh, but rather starting points for discussion. They should leave room for adjustment and refinement. So yeah, makes a lot of sense to me. Any feel free to comment on any of these lance or chime in, but yeah. Next up is V for valuable. Every story must provide value to the end user or customers. Um, if a story doesn't contribute to the user's needs or project's goals, it should be reevaluated or scrapped. Hey Tom. Howdy. We got, uh, every story should be estimable. That's a word I'd never heard of. I think it's a real word, estimable. The team should be able to estimate the effort required for a story. If a story is too vague to estimate, it needs to be broken down or clarified. Uh, next in this acronym is the letter S, small. Stories should be small enough to be comfortably completed within an iteration. I think that's, uh, I remember that kind of being a thing that you don't want... You, you want to be able to get things done within the sprint. You don't want things to kind of carry over and, and roll over to the next iteration. Sorry. Um, and the last letter in the acronym INVEST is the letter T, testable. Each story should have clear acceptance criteria to enable effective testing and ensure that it meets objectives. Uh, so, Tom, welcome to the show. I was talking about, we're talking about iteration zero and... Uh, yeah, I'm going to post it in the channel so people can see that acronym. I came across this acronym about defining user stories, which is this acronym called INVEST, and I had never heard of it. I thought it was interesting, thought I'd share it with the, with the, with the audience and, and my co-host here. The testing is interesting. Nothing about automated testing or, you know, is this, it, it's just acceptance test criteria. It's kind of interesting. So I don't know if I've actually ever participated in what the team called an iteration zero i'm trying to think if like when i when i was doing agile scrum 
if I ever worked with a team that was like, okay, this is iteration zero, this is sprint zero, you know, here's what we're we're basically trying to come up with a game plan to get started on the actual project. I feel like in most of my experience, it was always like you just had some really long meetings to kind of hammer all this stuff out. I don't really recall. How, they, you, they're usually yeah. strung together, right? It's usually you're planning or doing the the iterations as part of uh, like previous sprints. Yeah. Other parts of the iteration zero is just identifying risk in the project. You know, you, there's a, there's always tons of unknowns. Uh, the team should be discussing potential roadblocks and challenges and develop strategies to mitigate them. It's also a chance for the team to get to know each other, right? There could be bringing a bunch of new people together. This is, you know, it's ideally you want the team members to form a bond, uh, understand their working styles, uh, align on their communication and collaboration methods. Because obviously if a team that works well together uh, is more likely to navigate the complexities of a project and delivering value. So that's uh, that's what I got on iteration zero. What is your thought on a senior developer doing some of that first before bringing in the rest of the team? I would not be opposed to it. I, I do think it's always easier to... I always like someone to bring me a draft of something. I don't care if it's garbage. Just bring me something to work with. Because it's always, in my, the way I work, it's always easier to have a straw man proposal. That just means, you know, just throw together some junk, throw together some ideas. And that at least gets people talking, moving in the right direction. I've, I don't think I've ever experienced a, a case where someone brought some of that pre-work to the table and it totally derailed the project. It seems like it always kind of provides value. So I'm for it. What's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, I I think that a lot of times projects, if there's too many people in the beginning planning stages, I feel like it just takes too long to get started sometimes. And like, at least from my experience with starting new projects, if you just get one person to that senior level to just ramp up and, you know, think about what this project means as a whole, picks the stack, picks, you know, everything and just kind of builds a small prototype that everyone can then start to participate in after the fact. Um, it's usually gone faster and, uh, you know, to, to get people going because one person's just started making decisions, whereas a team sitting together, talking to about everything and hashing things out it just everyone has their opinions about things and it just grind to a halt um yeah. i feel like shape up which your your team uses kind of addresses this right because you when you shape up the project before you actually present it to the the uh delivery team right it's kind of it's kind of already partially baked it could even include a poc like you said well we can create a cycle zero too you know um and we can there's something called an R&D R&D pitch so you can you can instead of actually having it be a real pitch with real scope on an existing project you can do R&D uh, you can make that as long as you want you know uh, to within the realm of two to six weeks um, and uh, that could be sort of a micro sprint if you're trying to research something maybe they're building a prototype for something or they're literally setting up the project because it's new and you know, some developer has to work on, you know, getting everything in place and researching dependencies and yeah. So moving on, uh, you know, we get through that iteration zero, and then we're going to come to 
the first day of the first iteration, uh, which again starts with an iteration planning meeting. So I'm going to, I'm going to use a narrative to talk about some characters that are in this, in this, uh, you know, meeting, all teams are different. There might not be these people in the meeting, but just to kind of demonstrate the essence of it. So, you know, the project manager opens the meeting, you know, with some excitement about we're going to kick this project off. And he, he turns over the conversation to a business analyst who has a, a set of stories that she believes could be tackled in, in this first iteration. You know, this business analyst might be a product manager, uh, could, you know, whoever. And then, you know, that this business analyst is looking for the developers that are on the, on the delivery team to, you know, give a, give a estimate on their capacity for, for the iteration. So let's say in this example, the developers say, uh, you know, we think we can do 15 story points, uh, this, this week, we're going to do weekly iterations and the business analyst, you know, wants to take a more ambitious view and, and presents a list that is 22 story points. Right. And so this is really the essence of the meeting where, um, you know, the, the two parties are going to discuss and debate what's realistically achievable. And it really highlights a fundamental aspect of agile planning, which is that estimates are not promises or targets. They're, they're just informed guests, guesses. So when you're planning these iterations, you have to accommodate the realities of development. Um, if a team says they can do, they think they can do 15 points. If a product manager or, uh, a project manager says, well, I need you guys to do 25 points. Uh, all that's going to happen is that the team's going to inflate their pointing scale. And so it's really, you know, the amount of points that a team thinks they can do really shouldn't be negotiable or else you're just going to inflate the points to the point where every week the team's velocity appears like it's going up because they're just inflating their points. Have you seen that meme uh, where the they have the junior developer on the top and then the senior developer on the bottom? The junior developer is like, the spec is like really long and they're just like, yeah, I can do all of that. And then in, in, in you know, short a period of time and then the senior developer, it's like this really simple fix and they're like six months. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think I have. Um, so what it's important is that when you're having this discussion with, you know, your product managers and your delivery team members is that you have to prioritize the work that um, provides the highest business value at the lowest cost, right? So I'm going to post a little hand-drawn graphic I, I made um, that kind of illustrates how you think about this. Uh, doesn't seem to be working. Copy. No, paste, no. It's a quadrant graph where in the lower left-hand corner you have low cost but high value. So that's in the lower left-hand corner. And those are, the, those are basically cheap and valuable items, right? Those are the things you want to do first. If you move to the right, in the lower right-hand quadrant, you got uh, um, items in your backlog that are cheap and valueless. So yeah, they're easy to do, but they don't really provide any value to the user. So it's kind of like, meh, like probably don't do those, don't, don't prioritize those. If you move up uh, in the quadrant to the upper right quadrant, you've got, you've got high cost and low value. So these are expensive to implement and they provide little to no value. So these are your don't do them at all quadrant. And then you've got your upper left quadrant, which is high cost, 
high value. So it's expensive to implement, but it's also very valuable to the business. So that's probably going to be in the do it later or, you know, let's get the initial MVP out and then, you know, tackle some of these harder to implement value adds. Um, I think we've probably all seen flavors of that chart or, or talked about them. So I did want to just highlight it. And I, I do think it's important when you're having these discussions as a team to figure out, you know, what is the ROI on the things that you're implementing? Um, and it's also important to note that as the, you know, we're only on iteration one year. So this backlog is not, it. the backlog in um, new stories are always going to emerge. As you work through your iterations, there's going to be new stories. There's going to be new feedback from customers. There's going to be all sorts of things that can keep adding to that backlog. So there's going to be um, more, more items that provide that low cost, high value as you work through your iterations and you know obviously a, a project does not conclude when every story is completed uh project concludes typically when the remaining stories no longer justify the effort um which i, I think is an interesting concept to think about i'm just thinking about you know the, the initial project uh you know because it's a new project um if it's you, you a lot of times you're you've if it's a full-on app you have to build out the authentication you have to build out all these other extra things so it's like you know there's going to be in the very beginning there's going to be a lot of high value high cost things but you have to get through them otherwise you're not really deliver, delivering any value to the user yet you know kind of interesting yeah <clears throat> for, for me yeah. mike better yeah, um, it, I'm all about that, uh, the transparency and communication between the teams, you know, defining what that value is, who, you know, and who the customer is, especially it, maybe it's internal, maybe it's external, you know, if it's a team that is delegating this project down, right. I, I don't know where the business manager is and, or the analysts in, in your scenario here, but if they're on a separate team. It needs to be clearly, clearly defined. Are you are you transferring the external customers' value responsibility to that team? Are they responsible for making sure that it it is valuable to those customers? Right, it's working for them, and you know they're happy. Or is that other team that you know that assigned it? Are they the customer? Right? Are you just is that team just a contractor building? And I feel like that has to be clearly defined, um, and what those uh, those requirements are, who the who the customer is for each of these teams, and I think that's where it kind of breaks down. You know, it, it's kind of like you know implied, you know, implicit shared, but it needs to be you know explicit on what those you know responsibilities are of each team, and I, I feel like you have to have that before you know you get too um, wishy washy of of, you know, what, what the team is already say, like you're building value, but you're just actually working off of, you know, to an external customer, but you're just working off of a backlog to appease who delegated that work to you. So I think you have to, to clearly define that. And then, uh, and then on the, the value, um, and, and prioritization, 
it's it's tricky. It's because you you don't want it to be too complicated. I've, I was just researching this too the other day on on, on rice and other ways of, of prioritizing value because you don't want it to, that's a very simple model that you did, right? It doesn't take into dependencies and uh, time, right? Because things cost more over time and value changes over time. So, you know, those are just two bigger factors to add to that matrix. And then there's, you know, a lot more, you know, what is value to people? It's, you know, sometimes easier to put in dollar amounts, but sometimes it's not that, um, so... Yeah, those are my thoughts on those. Yeah, good feedback, Tom. Yeah, and you uh, don't even want to involve develop. I mean, you do kind of. It's interesting because so sprint, you know, that's a that's a supercharged word, right? Everyone has different feelings about it, but the purpose of the sprint, it's actually more useful in the beginning of a project because the whole purpose of it was to let's see if we can build a prototype as fast as possible and get user feedback from it. So, um, you know, especially when we don't know, we do know who the user is, maybe. Maybe maybe we don't know who the user is. Maybe we think we know who the user is, but we're still trying to figure out uh, a sort of more specific version of the user, right? And so we need to do more testing. And a lot of times that shouldn't involve, you know, a developer until you're ready to prototype or build out a prototype and you really know, okay, this is the person I want to test. I actually have this... I have access to this physical person or or whatever in some form, and I can get feedback from it uh, quickly. So that's the purpose of a sprint. And, you know, so there's, you can enter a project from different amounts of information that you already have on hand. Obviously, the more, the more information you have about the user ahead of time, the more successful that project's going to be. Um, but if you don't have it, then yeah, you're, you're still stuck in R&D and prototype land. Yeah, just to kind of um, put a cap on the iteration planning is a uh, rule of thumb is there should be 10 minutes of planning per day of the iteration. Um, so if you're at a one week iteration, that's 50 minutes, about an hour of your, should be about an hour meeting for the iteration planning. Um, I know that's very tough for a lot of teams. I've seen teams like spend four hours in, in a, in a, in a um, iteration planning um, obviously if you go to a two week sprint, uh, or even four week, the, that, the, the length of that meeting increases dramatically. So I've always been a fan of the one week iteration. I think it's time box enough to, to mix, move the needle, get things done. Um, and then you're not kind of dreading the, the two hour meetings or, you know, the, the long drudgery of, of, of meetings. In short, in those iteration meetings by having everything like in the shape up, uh, methodology. <clears throat> Each pitch is really well formatted, well planned ahead of time. It's and it's been, you know, just heavily discussed with the a developer and with the um, product person ahead of time. And so by the time it reaches the iteration, it's like a kind of a Bez Bezos likes this. You you have to you have to bring the agenda to the meeting. <laughs> Everything has to be written down, and, and and the meeting should be shorter because you know everyone has reviewed all of the things that are going to be in the iteration and now we're just sort of deciding what's priority so you yeah. can definitely shorten those meetings if you're if if all of the stuff all of the scope is heavily planned beforehand i, I actually be, like the should um, be for information transfer right the the meeting it should be for discussion right exactly it should be asynchronous as, as much as possible beforehand percent yeah i like some of amazon's 
policies around meetings. Like you can't do slide presentations. Everything has to be like a written document. Um, you're expected to be able to digest like six pages of, of, of a document and, uh, you know, just no slide decks, I think is interesting for, for meetings and that sort of thing, but don't want to go off on that tangent. So we, we've done the iteration planning. Now we actually, the team begins the work. Um, a lot of times there could be breakout sessions where developers need to talk about some, some design decisions. You know, there could be some whiteboarding, really just brainstorming about, you know, how we're going to implement these stories. If there's anything left to kind of figure out from there, sorry for all my ums. The, what's interesting about this is that with agile stories, aren't assigned to a specific individual, right? The team is kind of supposed to self-organize. So there's a bunch of stories that have been picked for this iteration. The team should be self-organizing and chosen by the developers, not, um, assigned. And I think that helps kind of shepherd that culture of accountability trust. I don't think, I, I don't know if I've ever worked in a, in a agile project where like the project manager or someone on the, or our team lead physically assigned the stories to individuals. I'm sure it could work, but I've never seen it. So it's like Kanban. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I think is common is you'll see sometimes, uh, they take a, a team member will take a user story and break that e up even further into tasks for that particular story and then put in the number of hours for, for each task. So it's kind of breaking up a story even further just to kind of uh, break it down even further so you know exactly what you're doing on the hour. I've seen that in some cases. I don't I don't typically prefer that. I feel like the story itself should have enough to, to know what needs to be implemented. So, yeah. Uh, moving on to continuing the execution of the, of the, of the iteration you have to think about your duty cycle in an iteration. So if we have a one week iteration, that first day of the iteration is planning, the planning meeting, design, architecture, initial setup. So that's a half day. On the end of the iteration, you're gonna probably do a demonstration, a retrospective, and that could eat up another potentially half a day. So that takes your actual work duty cycle down to four days. So you're at 80% duty cycle where you actually be spent working and the other 20% is planning and cleaning up. So you, sh you should kind of think about that when you're planning. The other crucial component of agile is that your iterations are consistent. It can be very tempting to extend, extend an iteration by a day or two so that you can get things done, but that really throws off your cadence. It throws off your, uh, velocity charts and your burn down charts, it would make it appear like you're getting more done than you actually could. And it just throws down, it just throws off your entire cadence. Of course, we've got the daily standup, which is very common in agile practices. And the daily standup includes the three questions. What did you do yesterday? What will you do today? And what obstacles are in your way? Uh, these meetings are supposed to be succinct and to the point. There shouldn't be any other break, you know, chatter or talking about other things. If there's, if there's more discussion, it should be done separately outside of the standup. It's really just to identify blockers and make sure everyone's humming along. What do you think you about asynchronous versus synchronous standups? I've done asynchronous, uh, th through a Slack bot 
and uh, I thought it was pretty cool. Like you, everyone enters their information, and then there was that quick meeting, and you really only need to touch base on the blockers or or breakout sessions that are needed. You introduced me to the asynchronous stand-up, Tom. Yeah, you you do have to have you know like constraints around it. You can't just be like free for all. It's you know because the idea is to identify those blockers and you know address them in you know the the timely matter. So if it's like you know off and when you say you have a blocker, right? Some people are recording at night and you know some people in the morning, right? So as long as you know you're all on the same page and on how that's done and and it's working for you, yeah, definitely. We actually have reduced it to. Uh... Monday check-in and Friday check-out. Per, per the shape-up methodology, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, so another new concept, which I've never done in practice that I came across for the sh- researching the show here, is the, is the midpoint check-in of the iteration. So at the midpoint of your iteration, which would be a Wednesday in our one-week iteration, Wednesday after lunch, there's two things that should, have, should be in place. All automated tests, acceptance tests, should be ready for execution. If they're not ready, then developers might need to assist the QA, assuming there's, if there's a distinct role between QA and development, um, that we need to get the automated tests ready. If developers consistently have to assist QA in that practice, it could mean there's an imbalance in the team structure. The second piece of this is that the team reviews the completed stories. So if the points accumulated at, at the Wednesday mark are significantly off from the expected halfway mark, it's a sign that you should recalibrate and, uh, you know, revise the workload. So like, say you had 10 points for this iteration and it's Wednesday and you guys only have two in the, in, that are done. Uh, Agile is about telling the bad news as early and as frequently as possible. So if you're halfway through the iteration and you're way off course, you should be having those conversations with within your team, within with your stakeholders to say, hey, we've only got two of our expected 10 done. What, what do you want us to focus on to make sure that we get done this iteration? Because the last thing you want to do is end an iteration with, you know, things partially completed um it's much better to focus on what provides the most value and get those things done um there's also the flip side of that you could it could be wednesday and you have eight points done and uh you would need to communicate with your business analyst a lot of teams just manage their own backlog so they, they would just know exactly what they need to pull in so if you're ahead of schedule um that is not you know, you shouldn't just kind of coast in for the rest of this, for the iteration. You should be looking to add and uh, figure out in your retrospective why you're able to achieve a higher velocity. And maybe, maybe, maybe something's happening with the team or with the environment or with the project in general that things are speeding up. Usually after the first few iterations, you'll, you will see an increase in speed because those first few iterations are slow. You're getting your environment stood up. You're, you're trying to get an automated testing framework in place and that sort of thing. So but you will see a plateau in your velocity at some point. So I thought that was interesting. I'd never heard of the, the midpoint check-in and kind of actually reevaluating where the sprint's at and kind of making some decisions right in the middle of your sprint on what, what, should, what you should get done versus what's feasible to get done versus what's not. Wayne made an interesting comment about um, accounting for holidays and iterations. And um, 
Monday and Friday ceremonies. It, it, it's it, it is interesting. Like um, <laughs> I I know every every year uh, around uh, the end of the year um, that last cycle that last cycle gets a little bit messed up because um, so you can't expect too much of people in those iterations, right? So obviously, if you're doing weekly iterations, uh, you can probably adjust for that a little faster, maybe. Um, so it's just a matter of kind of doing some pre-planning on that. Um, and then definitely Monday, Friday, like understanding that um, those days are kind of days that maybe you won't get as much done just because we're going to people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. And then, you know, being aware of when people are taking time off in general, like you've got a doctor's appointment, you you got a, you're taking a, a vacation day, all those things should be kind of accounted for in your iteration planning. Um, I want to get what you guys think about what I said in terms of like the midpoint check-in. Point number one was all of the automated QA tests should be you know, ready to go. All automated acceptance tests should be ready for execution. Have you guys ever heard of such a practice or seen it, seen anything like that in practice? You mean ahead of time? You write the test first? Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm just saying like, you know, they're ready for the developer because you can't call it done. You can't call something done until it's passed at all of the acceptance criteria, which includes all the automated tests. So, you know, if it's Thursday and the developer has his code written, but there's no acceptance test for him to run against it, it can't be done. So I think what what my research for the show was like all automated tests, all automated acceptance tests should be ready for execution by the midpoint of the sprint of the iteration. Where are these coming who's, from? Who's writing yeah. that? Uh, this one is from my hero, you know, Uncle Bob. Robert Martin. It's like a separate well, team. Writing, those writing these tests? tests, right? Yeah, we're yeah exactly. It it doesn't matter, right? It can either be their QA person on the delivery team or it's a developer on the delivery team. Like, it's a delivery you have team. To have, yeah, yeah. It's not some external team handy. Yeah, not some external team. Okay. No. It's all delivery team controls the entire project, right? No external factors. I think the ceremony uh, like is good. Uh, I think too much um, or ceremony can be good. Too much ceremony can be bad. Too much structure can be bad, right? You're just sort of dictating, you must do it this way. But as long as, I feel like as long as your acceptance tests are getting written and are getting pushed into production, then caring about whether or not they're done by the midpoint is maybe a little bit, I don't know. Uh, micromanaging. <laughs> yeah, I think Wayne points it out in the chat too. It's like if they're using test-driven design, then yes, you should your tests should be in place before you have the code. So it's really about what process you have. I came from my early days of development when we started doing Agile Scrum. There was no QA. There was no unit tests. There was no automated tests. The developers had to write their code and then manually test it. And then it went out for release. It wasn't it wasn't the best system, but it's how it was, right? So that was the process. So I think uh, it's a good call out by Wayne that if you're following test-driven design, you should have those tests at least stubbed out or ready to be executed prior to the actual code that is, uh, you know, doing that provided right. business value. 
like the you're, you're either writing the the BDD tests in their DSL and just it, yeah the actual test implementation isn't completed but the spec is there is that what we're saying um, or you have an abstraction layer like cucumber where it's talks it's just the actual specification with natural language assertions that you actually make work later mm -hmm. I'm okay with that I suppose yeah I, I think you're uh, Adam. You know, mixing in the, like the implementation, right? Yeah, with with agile. I, I feel like when you're talking about agile, you have you should do it without saying QA or developer or anything like that, right? Or tests, or it should be, you know, it's that the framework of communication, or you know, and allowing how you organize, but it, it shouldn't be yeah tied to any specific technologies or processes internal of what you're delivering, you know, through the agile process. That's my thought on that. When you start talking about, yeah, testing and handing off to QA and developers, it's like that, none of that should matter. None of that has to do with agile, I feel. It's, I don't know, with the internal, how your team is operating, implementing versus, yeah, the agile is kind of like that, that buffer of how you communicate that to the external stakeholders and you know progress i don't know yeah i mean i think for the sake of the show we are trying to kind of explore how an actual delivery team would execute on an iteration so we have to take some you know we have to talk about some of this stuff i i, I get what you're saying but I, it's, it's gotta like be yeah to i get it it's gotta be clear though i feel right when you start you know there's like oh handing to the QA, right? Or the test should be written. Like when we, you know, Lance, I have the confusion of where are these tests coming from, right? I think it's got to, got to be like, okay, within your team to help with the agile process, you know, you should have tests here by this point, right? To, to check your velocity and things like that. If you're doing this. It, yeah. Is uncle Bob labeling what kind of agile? Is it, is he like, this is scrum or this is, or is this just uncle Bob's thing? This is just like Uncle Bob's thing. Okay. Robert Martin, for those who don't know who Uncle Bob is, <laughs> contributor to the Agile Manifesto. Uh, so I do want to talk about a few more things before we wrap up here. We've got release planning with Agile. And I think that's an issue. Like every user story should be deployable uh, if you're calling it done, right? It, it should be in a, a state where it can be deployed. For business reasons, they might not want you to deploy everything right away as it's done, right? They might want to, you know, they've got a they've got a backlog, and there sometimes there's a line in the backlog that says this is the this is the line of we need all this done before we ship. Obviously, it's good to deploy things even if it's behind a feature flag as soon as possible, just to make sure your mechanics of deploying work, and you can test things behind a feature flag without actually exposing it to the public and all that good stuff. Uh, but I do think it's interesting to, to think about that, um, you know, business analyst, product manager, you know, usually there is some kind of line in the sand of where they want to get things to a point of saying this is ready for quote unquote release. But even though as, as developers, we should be always thinking about this, this thing should be deployable if we're calling the story done. What do you mean? It works on my machine. Yeah, exactly. And again, I think it comes down to who is your customer, 
right? Is this a team that is just writing code and handing it off the, you know, these, these features to another team that, that owns the value to the external customer, then maybe it's different, but ideally you'd like to delegate the, the, that value that you're trying to give to those customers, whether it's a certain persona or, you know, depending on how big your team is, right. Or how big the product is company determines how, you know, how niche that gets broken down. Um, but it should be clear, right? I ideally, a team should own a certain customer value, you know, externally, end to end. You know, it's that doesn't always happen. Depends on how big the app is. Things to be broken up. But I think, again, you need to make that clear distinction, right? If you're talking, you know, some, some companies, yeah, it is treated like we're just writing code and here you go i'm delivering it to this other team or some little piece of this or that uh but if it is external to the and in, in that case if, if your customers are internal you're delivering that by that date that you're giving them if your customers are external then that value is to your customers and you do need to deliver it by then for your sprint i think that's kind of where that that difference is um few other things I want to touch on, which is um, sometimes you don't know what you don't know, right? And there's actually a term in Agile for that. Um, when you face with stories that are difficult to estimate, uh, they have the term called spikes, spike story. And the idea is a spike is a thin, sharp, piercing object that can kind of, you pierce through the core of a problem, you investigate, and then you report back on what you actually think it's going to take to get this thing done. Um, I think the other term I've used and that I've used is exploratory stories. You kind of put a time box around how long you're going to investigate this. And then you can, you know, at the beginning of the next iteration, you say, oh yeah, I, I dove pretty deep into this challenge. And I think it's going to take us, you know, X amount of story points to actually do what we need to do here. The other thing I wanted to touch on, which I think we touched on earlier, is the ideal shape for a velocity curve, which is a velocity curve should remain pretty flat throughout the course of a project. A rising curve in your velocity indicates inflated estimates due to external pressure because story points are like a currency. They can be inflated. And uh, so what's a good practice is to, on one of your first iterations, is establish the baseline story of like everything we're going to estimate for this for the duration of this project will be relative to this story. Uh, so that way it kind of becomes your guiding light of eight iterations down the road. You should be thinking about that initial story that you said, well, that's a three pointer. Uh, so how is that? How is this? How are we currently pointing things relative to what we decided in the, in the initial phases of the project? Um, that's one way to avoid inflation. Uh, the other flip side of that is you could see a declining curve in your velocity chart. And that would be a, a sign that you're accumulating lots of technical debt or uh, declining code quality. So you're not refactoring. You don't have automated tests. You're just trying to move as fast as you can. You're sloppy. And eventually you, you kind of grind your ability to be productive to a halt because you decided to take a short, bunch of shortcuts that are now, you know, basically limiting your ability to uh, be productive. I thought that was interesting that... Oh. Wayne was saying about the how how um, how much of observing the velocity impacts the 
the team's behavior after the fact? Does it steer it? Yeah, it should it it should be just a dose of reality. Like it shouldn't really you shouldn't get emotional about it. It's you you if you're in a professional environment, agile is about delivering the hard cold truths every iteration so that the stakeholders are well aware, well ahead of time about where the project's at and so that they can make decisions about what's the highest value you need to get into the product so that you can ship something. I think as humans, it's very easy to get emotional and, you know, well, what if we just worked extra hours or what if we worked over the weekend? But, uh, you know, that's pretty much, you know, crunch time culture, toxic culture. You're going to get a lot of burnout. You're going to get people, employees leaving. seems like it's a very common practice in the video game industry um, where they have that crunch time culture, but I've never personally experienced it. I would probably avoid it like the plague. Do you, do you find that, You've ever you never been on a team where the stakeholders were maybe too pushy and expected too much and were just not aware of the you know the fact that development takes time and <laughs> yeah I've definitely been there I'm not sure you like that's all of that? I was just experience what <laughs> right? I thought I was thinking yeah. that right yeah yeah I I do think that at some degree um, stakeholders do need more pushback. Um, than they, they typically get, but. I did want to circle back to Wayne's question about other methodologies. Are there things outside of agile? I mean, I think it's all these different flavors of agile. Like you've got scrum, you've got Kanban. We've talked about another, uh, an emerging discipline called shape up, uh, which Lance's team uses at his company. There's of course, waterfall, which is the old school methodology. So. This is all tied to our series on Agile and, you know, all the different ways people do it. Yeah, so that's really why we're, we're exploring this and trying to dive deep into the actual mechanics of, of Agile and see what people are doing. Are there any performance uh, reviews in Waterfall? Are there any... <laughs> are they just like, it's this big project that we planned and it'll be done when all of these things are done? Actually, yeah, and the only way to go fast is to do it right, right? I've never it, been is a part it, of a waterfall project. I, th- I think, you know, Wayne's question, what if, what happens if business executives tie velocity to performance reviews? What, what you're going to have is people bloating their velocity. They're going to, you know, what was once a, a two point is now an eight point And, oh man, our velocity through the roof. So give me my, give me my bonus. And I think you need to be honest with, with executives about how that works. Or else, yeah, it's it's it benefits no one trying to put a charade around all this stuff. So, what about monetary assignments? <laughs> I've definitely seen that. Yeah, monetary assignments to the number of lines of code, <laughs> or or points, or what, or you know, a ticket gets this much value mon- in mon- monetary value. Hey, if organizations find a way to make it work and their their employees are happy with the system, you know, there's probably ways that are creative ways to do that stuff that are fair and just. I've, I I personally haven't seen anything like that. A lot of factors. We've talked about, yeah, we talked about it extensively where usually a date is, sent, is set for delivery before anything is planned or discussed. So, like, that's the reality of, of this type of work is that someone sets a date because it's three months out and it seems like we can get that we can get this big thing done in three months with no with no real thought or breakdown of of what was you know what would really take so 
yeah, I think this has been a good conversation, guys. I appreciate you you taking the time today. Any any other final topics or thoughts you guys want to chime in on before we wrap it up here? I'm just curious about what's uh, part three, but before you go do that, maybe Tom has something to say. I, I was just saying it. It's it's okay to do it this way, right? Having the another team, you know, assigning these, right? But you just have to. You can't conflate. The, you know, going back to what I said, you can't conflate the team having ownership to the customer, but then actually they're just delivering, you know, features to a team that tells them what to do. So ideally, I think, you know, the best scenario, the best way to do it is that, you know, have that decentralized teams that own that customer value and they're working directly with the customers. And, you know, the hierarchy is another team has assigned that to them, right? But yeah. That's, those are my thoughts. You know, it, it can't yeah, do it this way. You just have to be clear. You just have to be clear about who the customer is and how it's being delegated. I did have one last comment about the backlog. Uh, I think that, that, that could have its own 10 minute segment, but you know, uh, the purpose of a, like we don't, we don't really have a backlog in our process. I mean, it, it it's sort of there, but we don't revisit it. Um, you have to repitch things. Mm-hmm. You have to re. It's a new context now, so you can't just, you know, pull it pull it from the from the graveyard and and decide we can do this now. And then, you know, it, it's interesting. Like with, with our cooldown, that's kind of our okay. Maybe you can pull some extra things from the backlog if you really want to, but. Yeah, what do, I guess we I don't know if this is like the, the the episode to talk about it, but what are your feelings about actually keeping a backlog and what's its purpose? Yeah, I don't like backlogs. Every time I have a rule of thumb that whenever we do, do I do have a backlog grooming meeting on my calendar and part of that meeting is you we have to at minimum remove 10% of the backlog every time we go through it and groom it. Cuz if you don't kind of just get rid of the um, those things that don't have ROI or you're never going to get to. It just grows into this unwieldy beast. So I really like the idea of shape up and kind of not having a backlog and, you know, the pitch is made. And, yeah, I get those old pitches kind of going in an archive, which is wink, wink, somewhat of a backlog. But if you're going to revisit a pitch, you got to update it and make sure it's, you know, relevant to the current landscape, like you said. So, yeah, the best thing you can do with a backlog is say no. Wayne just hit the nail on the head. Nope, nope, nope. Slash and burn. If it's not worth doing now, it's not worth, it's, in most cases, it's not worth doing ever. <clears throat> well, I want to take this opportunity to thank all our listeners for tuning in to today's episode of Lunch with Tech Leaders. We hope you found the conversation informative and valuable. We'd love to have you join us again next week where Jason Brown and expert co-hosts are going to discuss the top tools for serverless development something right up Tom's alley. Uh, Be sure to tune in because it's going to be a raunchy and wild ride. Take care, everyone. When servers go serverless, do they just get extra wild? Is that that how it works? (laughs)